This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is David Van Shake, and he is the chief marketing officer of the marketing practice, one of the leading B2B marketing agencies in the country with revenues only over £17 million. They've got over 180 people and run global marketing programs for the likes of Microsoft, O2 Telefonica, Xerox, Salesforce, and Citrix. David has really a fascinating background, not only academically, but also professionally as well. He starts his career as a copywriter in 2005, and he joined really at the right time because from that point on, growth has really taken off for the agency. They're ranked number three in the fastest growing UK B2B agencies. They're ranked number nine in the fastest growing US B2B agencies in the world. The arc of David's career really tracks the development of behavioral science and behavioral economics and how that discipline has been adopted by the marketing profession at large and made popular by the likes of Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman's book, and Predictably Irrational, Dan Ariely and, and, and others. From that point of view, he's really a marketing purist that takes the practice really seriously and talks about the importance of B2B marketers really taking brand far more seriously than they have done so far and focusing not just on the bottom of the funnel metrics, but the brand awareness, top of the funnel, uh, fame metrics. Also, stick around until the end of the show where we hear who's coming up next on the podcast as well. If you're interested in anything to do with brand versus demand gen, account-based marketing, behavioral science and B2B marketing, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with David Van Shake. David Van Shake is the CMO of The Marketing Practice, one of the leading B2B agencies in the country. He is a career B2B marketer and has worked on some of the biggest B2B brands in the world. David also has a graceful left foot. David Van Shake, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Hi, Nathan. Yeah, thank you. The uh, the left foot thing is a, is a complete fantasy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, you don't have a good left foot. Uh, no, I've got a decent right foot. My left foot is, is, is shocking. Just for standing on. <laughs> so I, I've been really looking forward to speaking to you, actually, for you know for quite some time. You're a marketing purist in many ways. You you love all the behavioral science stuff, and I'm really looking forward to sort of getting into that and the marketing practice as well. It's just a, a legendary agency that I've been interested in and following for, for some time. So really looking forward to the interview. But just before we get into all of that stuff, you, you get a first from York University in English Literature and Writing for Performance in 2001. And that seems like a natural transition into the agency world. But you say that you actually stumbled into an agency after working in pubs and the Forestry Commission, as you do. How did you get your start in the world of B2B marketing? Yeah, so yeah, it, it wasn't the case that I I knew what I wanted to do. I was kind of scrabbling around, looking at all sorts of jobs. Um, and yeah, I found, found this ad in the local paper, as you did back then, um, for a copywriter and thought that that sounds like something I can actually do. But uh, uh, I, the, the funny story was I actually turned up two hours early for my first interview. <laughs> Slightly alarming, the people who, who, who were there, because I've been given this <laughs> advice, right, that it's a good idea to turn up early and check the place out and make sure it's the place right. you want to work as well as they want to work with you um that's good advice 
Oh yeah, and I maybe had a bit of a misconception of the scale of the place because there's like eight people in one room. Oh, uh, so um, yeah, so I, I you freaked everyone out. Yeah, yeah, I certainly did. Yeah, I certainly freaked out the guy who was interviewing me. Thought he got everything all wrong, but um, okay. So yeah, I um, ended up I think getting a baguette and a paper from the local shop and seeing <laughs> it a spare desk. <laughs> Well, this appeared at me. Really interesting. And they subsequently hired you. There must have been. You must have given a, an amazing interview. <laughs> they must have been desperate, right? Yeah. No, I think right? uh, it was. It, it worked for some reason. I think probably the other piece of advice that I got that was good. Good advice was make sure that you get them to talk about themselves as much as possible during the Smart. interview. Smart. Smart. Uh, which is a good early bit of behavioural psychology, perhaps. And, yeah. and I guess I guess that that worked. So yeah, here we are good sales trick as well you you joined the marketing practice as you say as a copywriter in 2005 and rose to become the cmo of one of the leading b2b agencies in the world as we said in, in the intro was that always your plan from the beginning um <laughs> i think if you'd met me back then anyone who met me back then would have struggled to uh, label me as a, as a man with a clear plan <laughs> uh, you know probably had a certain shabby charm perhaps but but i think um uh, you know i had to learn quite quickly the the, the marketing ropes and the certain standards of professionalism that were expected. But I guess there was probably uh, the, the agency was always very ambitious and it's, and it's always been part of the, the DNA of the marketing practice to, to want to be one of the best B2B agencies in the world. So I guess I've absorbed that over the years. So, so you joined the company when there were roughly sort of eight to 10 people, you now have over 170 people and have clients of some of the biggest B2B brands in the world Describe how the company grew over the last 12 and a half years. Just give us sort of a, a whistle-stop tour as to what the growth journey looked like. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 all been organic. Uh, that's the first thing to say. So, you know, it's all been off our own back, if you like. And I think, really, the lion's share of it has come through uh, through referral um, and just for, for doing good work, delivering great results for the clients, getting a good reputation, being referred Clients move on to a new role. They they take us with them, um, you know. Up until probably sort of four years ago, we were we were UK only. And the last four years has been really about international expansion. So we've um, we opened an office in Germany, in Munich, which is uh, we've got a great team out there now. And then very soon after that, we went over to the US uh, and opened in Seattle. And there's I think forty odd people now in Seattle. And yeah, January will be Australia. So that's that's the that's the next horizon for us. So, you know, the other thing to say is I think we've we've been really focused on what we can do well and what we can do brilliantly. We have mm. actually turned down quite a lot of business over the years because it wasn't necessarily the the right fit, and we didn't think we could do the uh, a brilliant job. And so that that focus on you know, the complex B2B sale, if you like, mm. um, and the areas of that that we, that we know we can do really well, that, that, that's a, always been a big part of the strategy. And I think it's been a big part of why we've been so successful. So you mentioned international expansion there with Australia being the next stop on the, on the, um, on the growth journey. What, what factors go into deciding whether or not to expand internationally, where to expand, um, why did you take the decision to expand internationally and sort of what what's the process to actually understand right is this a good thing or not for the agency yeah it's a mixture really there's there's a there's like a there's definitely a strategic side to it you know we 
we want to be pushing the industry forward and, and, and doing brilliant work for our clients and, and sort of furthering the cause of B2B marketing. And to do that requires us to be international just to get the scale and the type of opportunities that we that we want to work on. And then, you know, there's quite a, each time we've opened an office, we go through quite a rigorous process of looking at the local market, trying to understand where the right location is, you know, client referrals, uh, local talent market, all those kind of things. But there's also a big slice of it that's just opportunistic. Um, mm. And, you know, at the end of the day, you just got to take the, take the leap, I think. And, you know, for, for example, our, our, our German office, which was our first international office, we'd, we'd been looking at it for a couple of years, but we hadn't quite taken the plunge. Um, and then it was actually an ex-client of ours who, who knew something of our ambitions had left his, his job at a uh, client side and said, look, uh, he was actually in Sweden at the time, but he's native German. He said, look, you know, I'd really like to do this. How about I go out there and, and you know, set the office up? And, and so that was just, a, you find someone like that, someone like Andreas, who's, who's a brilliant marketer, and just you, you take the opportunity when it comes. Mm, really interesting. So so Clive is is the founder of the agency. Matt is the CEO at 30 years old. I'm sure he's a really nice guy, but that makes him instantly unlikable <laughs> straight away. He, he um, it off. Yeah, he does pull it off. <laughs> so he, he was frustrated, as I understand it, with how agencies were so siloed and, and fragmented with ads and copy and telesales in, in, in different rooms, etc., not communicating or sort of talking to each other. What was his vision for a new type of agency? Yeah, so this was yeah, yeah, going back to the founding in t- two thousand two with 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 Clive and and um, it's one of the founder, a lady called Lindsay. They both worked client side for a big um, IT company at the at the time. Clive was the global marketing director. Lindsay was in his team, and yeah, the the frustration was, as you say, that that things were so siloed. So uh, if I, you know want to get some achieve something i need to get copy done over here some telemarketing done over here design done over here pr over there um it's probably you know a bit before the days of digital <clears throat> and it was up to him and his team to to tie it all together but you know more importantly no one could be responsible for for those types of outcomes they were just they were delivering outputs so that was his epiphany moment as he describes it and he thought if, if i have this challenge then so do a lot of my peers. Uh, mm. And so the, the sort of founding vision for the marketing practice was to bring all the skills together in one place that you would need to de- design and execute go-to-market programs and take responsibility for them delivering qualified pipeline and revenue and improving conversion rates and the kind of commercial outcomes that marketing should be known for. Hmm. So so there are lots of talented and... and um strategic b2b marketing agencies out there global b2b marketing agencies what makes the marketing practice different special stand out yeah i mean for a long time that model has been very differentiated so we have sort of what you'd expect from a typical creative agency writers designers digital specialists we also have very strong data and analytics team and that does still differentiate us in in the market you know they're doing a lot of Mm predictive modeling, propensity modeling, increasingly making use of things like intent data and so on. Mm. And we've also got uh, an ins- our own inside sales team. So these are sort of people using phone, social, email to, to actually speak to the decision makers day in, day out. Sure. Um, and we, we put these together in what we call scrum teams. So we've started to adopt some of the agile method and language. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the the key is the integration between all those different disciplines 
and the closeness of the integration. So there, there is digital and, if you like, human channels integrated throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, I think there's a sort of, there can be a, a production line type approach where, you know, you, you, you do your digital stuff, you get your qualified leads and you hand it over to someone who's actually a person to, to sure. qualify it. Sure. For the complex sale, that, that just doesn't really work as well as having those channels integrated throughout the whole process. So you can get qualitative and quantitative in, intelligence back and adapt the approach as you go. So, you know, that, that model is still pretty differentiated. Um mm. And you know, I think I think the other thing is 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 that focus we talked about uh, that 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 still serves us well. Mm, really interesting. So so let's talk a little bit about Matt at thirty years old, the um, the CEO. What what sort of a CEO is he? Talk about what his leadership style is. Uh, how does he strategically lead the company? Yeah, he's he's very inclusive. I think very collaborative. I mean, clearly he's. You know, the, the the first thing people would notice about him is he's he's very young, but he's kind of frighteningly competent. Actually, if you spend any time with him, he's pretty much always the smartest person in the room. He mm. knows what's going on in the business in enormous detail. He makes sure he makes time for people, and you know, the, I think it's it's an interesting stage in our journey now. You know, Clive has been very much hands on leader. For the past 18 years, he's taken a step back. He's extremely comfortable and confident in Matt. Um, but I think there's a group of people now who got the opportunity to kind of take the business forward and, and define what that next stage looks like. So it's it's an exciting time. You don't see many agencies running that Silicon Valley model of sort of short sprints, agile teams, scrum teams, this, using this really sort of lean, iterative process it's really sort of adopted from that Silicon Valley tech mindset. Talk about why initially you you brought that in and, and how does that enable you to run better projects and deliver greater value for your clients? Yeah, we're, we're actually sort of, I, I describe us as accidental agile advocate <laughs> in that we right. uh, we built a model because it works and then we've we've since realized that what we're doing um, is quite well described by some of the agile principles. So this idea of you know small, multidisciplinary teams who are outcome focused, um, and they've got the ability to kind of test and learn and adapt, and a regular cadence around that through the program. That that that's the model that we built because that's what works when you're trying to do pipeline generation and account based marketing in, in the complex sale, and then you know. We've started in, in recent years to, I guess, pick up some of the agile methods and, and, and formalize that a little bit. But it's really just, it's 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 about the fact that you can have those, um, you, you kind of break down the silos so you can speak to the people you're trying to target. You can get some intelligence about what's working and what's not working. This message is working. This is, a, And you can adapt that very quickly. You can change the copy mm. on the emails, on the ads. You can change the communication strategy. And you can get that feedback back into the client as well. So there's a lot of intelligence that you can you can give them about the market using that model. Really interesting. And does it also help from a sales point of view? You know, when you're speaking to other uh, large tech companies who also operate in in that in a similar way, uh, that alignment in the way that they operate and the way that you operate must be must be quite appealing to them as well. 
Yeah, I think I think what's appealing is probably the the realism. So part of the message is look, we don't know all the answers. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of experience in marketing for the complex sale. You'll have a lot of experience in your market. Together, we might have eighty percent of the answer, but that last twenty percent that's going to make the difference is going to come from actually getting out into the market, testing the message, speaking to people, and, and adapting from that. And I think that definitely does. You know, that's that's well received. I think. Let's talk a little bit about your role as CEO. Why does a global marketing agency such as yourself need a CMO and what do you do for the company? I mean, clearly I look after our our marketing and I try to do the job as it should be done and, you know, cover the, the four Ps, if you like. So it's not just our marketing mm-hmm. communications, but it's our product and how we're positioning ourselves in the market and who we're talking to and where we're selling and the way we price it and um, all those pieces. and and you know, well, I guess we're we're quite a, a marketing centric organisation, and and it, you know, in the end, that's meant I'm I'm now sort of lead and coordinate on the business strategy. So at the moment, I'm putting together the, uh, you know, working very closely with Matt to pull together the the global plan for the next three years. Um, what markets we want to be in, how we're going to develop our capabilities, what should our product look like, those sorts of questions. Really fascinating. I'm, I'm sure all of that has changed somewhat in, in light of COVID-19 and, and, and 2020. What impact has the pandemic had now that we're no longer able to attend real world events and we're no longer able to do a lot of the things that B- B2B marketers were used to doing pre, pre-COVID? How have your plans changed in light of the pandemic? Yeah, so so as an agency, our, our plans haven't haven't changed you know greatly um clearly there was a there was a period you know earlier in the year where we where we went into a very short planning cycles um we had to make sure that we were looking closely at what the impact was going to be from a financial perspective we've always been very good at making sure we've got a kind of robust business i guess but fortunately the impact hasn't been too dramatic a lot of clients have been shifting rather than stopping what they're doing um, so it's been helping them adapt the programs. A lot of what we do is actually very recession proof. You know, we've we've actually thrived in every recession that we've you know that we've been through in the last eighteen years hmm. because that focus on you know marketing that, that delivers and can be accountable for commercial outcomes. Um, hmm. That's really what people want and need in in a recessionary environment. So for the agency, it, it it hasn't held us back, and in in a funny way, it's probably just accelerated our ambition. You know that there is, I think, even more desire to continue this the journey and 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 continue building the marketing practice. Let's talk about the complex B two B sale, as you as you mentioned earlier. Describe what that means for everyone listening, because we know that in complex high value decisions there are 6.7 people or 6.4 people i don't know how you can have 0.4 of a person but there are multiple people decision makers involved in in making the buying decision over very long periods of time we're talking about uh you, you know high high value deals um that really come with a lot of pressure there's a, you know there's really a lot at stake for making these uh decisions describe what a typical b2b complex buying decision looks like today in 2020 yeah well i think you've touched on the key points really it's the 
the things that really define it are the the length of the sales cycle. You know, you're talking 12, 18, 24 months sometimes, you know, particularly if you're thinking about the, the kind of marketing cycle in advance of that. And the number of people involved, you know, 6.7 or whatever is from the is from the challenger customers research. You know, yeah. in most cases, it's enough. It's often way more than that, you know, with 30 mm. or 40 people involved. Mm. And then actually, you're talking about a work environment in which people are making decisions not to, you know, not to objectively further the cause of the business and not necessarily making the decision because that's exactly what they think will be the best solution. It's what's going to be best for their career, what's going to look best sure. to their peer group, to their boss, to their boss's boss. Um, so there's some really interesting psychology in there, but that also makes decision-making, that decision-making unit or universe uh, even bigger. And so how do you influence the way people think and behave and communicate in that environment over that period of time um and that's you know that's that's a fascinating there's, there's so much psychology in that loads of interesting things about communications communication theory and, and that's kind of what i you know love to think about i guess so so let's talk about that then because that's that leads us on to the behavioral science stuff that underlying reason as to why people do what they do it's not um, I mean, you said that there's so much at stake for them reputationally. It's really about when it comes to those big decisions, it's about their careers and how it makes them look. So there are real, there are really sort of fundamental, deep rooted uh, sort of factors at play here. Talk about the importance of context in complex B2B buying decisions. And, and what have you learned from the behavioral science guys, Kahneman, Tversky, Thaler, et cetera, that you're now using to uh, help your clients win new business and grow? Yeah, so um, I think that the, often the place to start is that there's a, there's a phrase that's kind of popularised uh, at the moment, which is to say it's not B2B, it's human to human, right? which mm. which is fine, but it's pretty trite, right? It doesn't tell us a lot. Um, it just reminds us that we're talking to humans, which is, you know, perhaps not a good look to <laughs> remind us. Those without saying, yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> But I think what people, you know, it, the, what I say is it only goes half half the way. What people are trying to get at is the fact that we are, and when when they say we're, we're marketing to humans, that they're, they're talking about the insight that we are irrational and prone to loads of bias and, you know, just as weird and unpredictable in business scenarios as we are as, we are as, as consumers. So there is no such thing as homo economicus. We're not making rational decisions, mm. and that applies just as much at work as it does um, when you're making, when you're a consumer, but but the thing is the other half of it is that is that part of the that is the context of work and how what a strange and weird and environment that is and how does that affect our behaviour? Mm. You know, one of the things that behavioural science teaches us is we constantly we consistently underestimate the importance of context in uh, how people make decisions. We sort of overemphasise consistency of personality um but that that work context that that fact that you're making a decision that could in extreme cases it could be about your livelihood could be at stake you know and then even in the less extreme it's about your career and your your aspirations and how you how you feel about yourself and, and all those sorts of things 
So, so what we're saying there is that, you know, you take an individual and you put them in a consumer context um, and then you take that same individual and then put them in, in the, the work environment, completely different decisions that are made because of the context that, that the individual is now in. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there are still some of the same biases, but yeah, the, the context is so different so that it puts a different pressure on and it means it has a lot of implications for how you think about marketing and communications. So, you know, if we take, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example, which is a, a favourite example of mine, which is how over the last, you know, six, seven years, the the, the likes of Eloqua and Marketo uh, mm. managed to build uh, a consensus that, that marketing automation was was the thing you needed to invest in and got lots of, loads of marketers to invest in it and often a long way before they were really ready to invest in that kind of technology um you know that they ended up using them as glorified email sending platforms and trying to automate processes that were kind of a bit they weren't ready to to be automated in in the first place so um but what they did was they created this whole narrative around modern marketing uh and they sold that to the industry Mm. brilliantly so that if you were a marketing decision maker and you're thinking right you know where am I going to go with my career? There's clearly uh, mm. this big trend coming, and I can you know, called modern called marketing. Modern marketing, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and you know, it, the optics of that. If I if I if I go around saying sixty seven percent of the buying journey is now done online, and look, I've got a way of mm. uh, I've got a way of dealing with that, and look, you know, actually to go against that to say, I don't think we're ready to take on marketing technology at this level we need to look at our own processes first would have been extremely brave yeah um, even if it might have objectively been the right decision it would have probably been a foolish one for people for their career especially at, at that time when all of the literature and all of the consensus was moving towards hey this is the way that modern marketing is done and this is if you want to be successful today this is what you need to do yeah. Yeah, so you know that's a big example, and clearly they, there's a lot. Of, I don't know whether they set out to deliberately do it that way. There was clearly a lot of money invested, but you can you can consider that same example at a very small scale. You know, it applies right down to one to one account based marketing when you're trying to look at. I don't know. We're one of our big clients is O2, so we we help them with uh, technologies like five G, which is you know obviously that's that's a long sales cycle you know you're talking to the client a long time before the technology is actually ready helping them understand what the use cases are um and the same considerations apply in that scenario how are you going to try and create an environment in that account in which the obvious consensus is is o2 and that any decision to go with o2 is is going to look like a smart one so so let's talk about that in a bit more more detail then specifically let's talk about abm because you just mentioned that and in the context of what you talked about around marketing automation 2010 2011 2012 up to probably a couple of years ago marketing automation was really you know the the way that modern marketing or the way that modern marketing was really sold and and packaged to the modern marketer now we're really looking at abm and we're looking at intent-based ABM, using intent data to sort of look at where people are in the buying process and really understand their propensity to buy. Are they in market or not? And account-based marketing has really sort of 
in many ways, I would argue, is probably where um, sort of marketing automation was in 2012, 2013. Talk about the importance of account-based advertising today, what that looks like, and where are we in relation to sort of marketing automation, where marketing automation was all those years ago? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I I guess we've been doing account-based marketing for a long time. So we we ran our first event on account-based marketing in 2007. Hmm. So we've always had a very account-based approach. And I think that is, you know, about being very clear on your segmentation and on your targeting and then on your positioning. It's kind of classic marketing skills. And often, again, because a lot of our a lot of our work is with clients who've got you know quite high value deal sizes. Um, that approach really makes a lot of commercial sense. In recent years, clearly you've been able to scale that a lot more using using the data and analytics to segment and target your a, a larger scale, perhaps more dynamically in in, in more real time, so that we're seeing a lot of the same. I guess, challenges coming to us from clients about how do we generate pipeline in this market or really beat to a, you know, change the audience from an IT audience to a business audience or so on. But but just the label that they're putting on that is is now account-based marketing, whereas a few years ago it might have been demand generation right. or something like that. So, mm. so the label is being quite broadly applied. And it, obviously then it becomes a bit of a, it does become a bit of a trend. I think the... The bit for me that's interesting at the moment is this this quite a bit of debate about is it account-based marketing or is it ABX, you know, account-based everything? Uh, and that feels like it could be a bit faddy to me um, mm. because I get the point that the point they're trying to make is like ABM is about marketing and sales and often service and engineering and other parts of the business working together, uh, particularly at the, at the strategic end, working, you know, closely together around a, an account plan and a, to, to deliver goals but but the marketing bit about account-based marketing is really important and we shouldn't forget about it because that's the marketing and account-based marketing doesn't refer to the function it re- refers to the craft mm. and it's that ability to understand the market at an account level who the decision makers are the positioning the messaging the communication strategy all those marketing skills um that's what that's what you're doing ultimately. That's what gets the results. Hmm. So let's talk about this then in the context of brand, because that leads us nicely onto the marketing bit, right? Um, how much of what we do in marketing should be about building that brand and sort of all of the behavioral science stuff, the underlying human emotion stuff versus um, demand gen, because any marketer worth his salt, I'm sure, uh, has a number to hit. And if you focus solely on brand at the expense of demand gen, then I'm sure you'll be out of a job pretty quickly. So there needs to be a balance that's struck. What should the balance be between focusing on brand and demand gen? Yeah. So if you listen to Les um, Binet and Peter Field, they've done some work on, on B2B recently and said it's it's 54 46 in favor of sales activation is, is the ideal balance in, in B2B, apparently. How did they come to that number? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, 54, 46 is also a tune by Toots and the Maytals. <laughs> great, great tune, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is a great tune. Uh, I'm, 
I'm not sure Toots was talking about the balance between brand and Com- sales. Complex B2B decisions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think they, they looked at the IPA case case study. I don't, I you know, case bank. I, I don't think they had many B2B examples to go on. But the, the sort of B2C average is 60-40 the other way around. And, and they their, their conclusion is that that's similar. I, I would say that's quite a big difference. But I think the point is it's not, a straightforward dichotomy and it's not the case that brand is about the behavioral science and the emotional stuff and then demand gen is just about rational offers and and sales activation particularly again in that complex b2b sales cycle you've got 18 months of communications each of those communications is is going to be a it's an opportunity to start building the right associations and 18 months later on if you've done a really good job of that with some of your communications that are broader reach and, and uh, brand level and all of your communications that are targeted, then you're going to be in a place when you're going to have, you're going to have an edge when it comes to that RFP or that big deal. Um, so the same kind of ways of thinking actually apply at both a, a brand level and a demand gen level. There isn't really that distinction for me in it. It's about, it's about how you orchestrate those two things together over a period of time to to get to a place where someone believes that uh, you know the classic example is you're never going to get you won't get fired for hiring IBM, mm. but but it's all about building the the associations I think uh, over time. So so talk about what you mean by that then. So could you give us a a either an example from a client that you've worked with that you're particularly proud of? or maybe one that you've seen um, that you haven't worked on directly. Give us an example of sort of what, what you mean by that. Um, yeah, I think O2, there's a, there's a good example there where, um, you know, we've been working with them for 10 plus years now, uh, O2 Enterprise, so the, the people who sell to, they sell to large businesses over sort of 2,000 employees. And um, they've obviously got this big consumer brand and um, part of the challenge there is how do you how do you turn that to an advantage in a in a business context um, because it could be seen as a disadvantage you know you're a consumer brand um, so you're not not so relevant to businesses um, so a lot of the positioning has been is about the fact that because they've got that strong consumer heritage and that relationship with individuals through the mobile contracts and through the retail operations they have and you know the, the O2 um, the venue they get how people work and think and operate uh, and that's kind of the most incru- crucial ingredient in any mobile connectivity solution it's not the technology it's about the people mm. um, so you know we've really helped them develop that positioning and bring that to life over the over the years and the most recent sort of iteration of that was a um, kind of brand activation campaign called uh, We Get People, which is, you know, a play on we understand people, but we also we, we get them stuff and we yeah. get them doing stuff. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's quite a deliberate approach to <laughs> that then runs through, you know, the demand gen activity and the ABM activity that we do for that. And the, the intention is that, again, that you get to that moment when you're making the decision and, and the audience, the client, 
thinks that actually understanding people and how people work is is central to success and they associate O2 very strongly with that belief and so therefore O2 have a have an advantage that that's going to give them the edge in, in the deal and that's what we're about really as marketers we're not we can't make the sale we just we've got to give people every advantage that we possibly can um mm. and so it's trying to orchestrate that that situation over a period of time mm. Really, really fascinating stuff. I could talk to you about this all all day, but we're frantically run, running out of time. I, I need to get to my my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, one more question before we get into um, our our favorite questions. Uh, couldn't let you go without talking a little bit about COVID nineteen and sort of the context that we're in right now. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you haven't actually been uh, affected too too negatively by by the pandemic in fact you've actually grown through several recessions actually which is um which is which is great to hear um how keen are you to start going back into the office and sort of getting uh sort of life as we knew it back to um back to life as we knew it versus how much do you think that we will be in these hybrid environments uh, moving moving forward, and is that something that you think is good for business? Is it good for the marketing practice? Is it good for business in general to be operating remotely in the way that we are, or would you prefer to go back to the way things were? Um, yeah, so I mean, clearly it was it was a it's been a you know a shocking year, and it was pretty horrible at first. I think a lot of people really struggled from a mental health perspective, particularly you know a lot of anxiety that comes from just being separated from everyone and not seeing people face to face at all. I think that is definitely a, a struggle. You know, I think on the other side, it, it has now when we've had some time with it, it, it gives you a chance to reflect on what's important and what things, you know, you're you're doing just for the sake of habit really and, and tradition. And, you know, so I think there will be much more flexibility about going into the office and how we use the office going forward and we were always pretty flex good at flexible working and i'd work from home a day a week but now i think it will be three or four days a week mm. um and and that's kind of fine but you know the the bits that you you miss are the other other larger group interactions i think and you're when you're doing a uh, particularly meetings with clients you know we've, we've i've had one face-to-face meeting with with clients since this whole thing started and that that was great socially distanced yeah yeah socially distanced yeah um but that was that was great and that's a big part of you know the the, the joy of agency life really is is getting that buzz from having a good meeting with a client or a uh, good presentation to a large group of people or you know great idea generation session mm. one-on-one with somebody in a, in a room for a couple of hours it's, mm. those sorts of things are, are a big part of it so so I'm looking forward to getting back to that and I think we will get back to that just in a uh, you know in, in a hybrid model I guess yeah but but also just from the point of view of um, I guess younger people starting in the agency joining the agency overhearing conversations in the corner of the room that buzz of I mean you're 170 people uh, obviously not in in all in in one location in in several but um just overhearing conversations being inspired by you know what a google google call it sort of uh, those serendipitous moments is to, you know to the reasons why they built their their campus as an open plan 
because you bump into people and you make unexpected connections. We're no longer able to do that now. And I think that's a, a massive loss, not only for our businesses, but, you know, but for the economy. Yeah, it's a great point. I think your your world is is that much smaller. You just see a, a fewer number of faces and then they're the people that you work closely with. Um, and so, yeah, I think that in, innovation bit is is a is a key part and we, you know we, we you know we're obviously trying to combat that by some of the ways that we uh, get people together and you know share sort of more more what's going on in the agency more innovation from outside the agency with a larger group of people on a, on a more regular basis but I don't think yeah you're right it's very difficult to replace the um, the serendipity of it mm. And and then final, final question before we get into our favorite questions, just on the diversity angle. I mean, 2020 has has shone a, a huge spotlight on all things diversity, ethnic and, and gender. How are you thinking about diversity within the agency when it comes to uh, ethnic diversity, gender diversity? What are your clients also looking for and expecting when they are hiring a new agency is that part of the conversation that they're looking at at all or is is that still not on on the table i'm just curious to understand what your take has been on everything that's happened from a diversity standpoint so far this year and sort of what are you guys thinking and doing about it yeah uh, it's a good question i mean at the moment so far it hasn't been a it hasn't been something that's been uh, you know a front and center of of what clients have been been asking for but I think that will will change to some extent and I think that that's a good thing um you know we're we're very honest we're, we're not particularly a diverse agency as it as it stands and that that's you know there's all sorts of reasons for that not, not least of which is is the locations that we're we're based in mm. but we need to work very hard to try and tackle that in a you know in a, in a positive and constructive and proactive proactive way so um like a lot of agencies, I think we we're just trying to figure out what what does that mean. Listen to listen to people, listen to other agencies, figure out what what the options are available to us in terms of things like positive discrimination and so on. Um, the, the the first thing that we're doing is is setting up a a council from from across the business that's going to be picked by by lottery that. Hmm. you know from a set of volunteers but then we'll pick by lottery that that will that will focus on diversity and inclusion um and they're going to then develop the the policies and the the interventions that we that we then take forward so it is you know it we're definitely early in the journey but i hmm. think it's good that it's it's been brought to the fore Hmm. Well said. Let's get into everyone's favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm excited to ask you some of them as well. Um, start with a nice, easy one that we ask everybody. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Uh, right. Yeah. Let me just um, prep. These are the ones I probably should have prepped. <laughs> Thought about a little um, bit. <laughs> so what have I? If you haven't failed, that's uh, okay. Yeah, as well. no, they're, they're, you and I are. <laughs> we're the only two humans in <laughs> yeah. existence yeah so one of the things that i've um that i've learned a lot about in the journey is, is mental health and how to to deal with that you know fortunately i'm fairly zen about the world but but working with 
people who have struggles with anxiety or you know mental health challenges uh, being a line manager and ma- managing them and I've been in that situation in a, a, a few times now a couple of times at least over over the period and I think uh, I learned an enormous amount about how much you can actually influence that um, and how much you can talk to people and try and convince them that they're not seeing the world rationally and and uh, they are actually really good at their job for example um, versus respecting the illness and I think uh, if I would have would have had the chance again I would I would uh, deal with it very differently I, I think I've always tried to be very supportive but it's about when you intervene and say enough is enough we need to get some help here mm. and uh, I think that you know if we're talking about diversity and inclusion that 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 uh, subject mental health is is a is another it's a big part of that and it's another one that's kind of um very front and center at the moment Mm. and i think that it would be you know that there's a real opportunity for more education and training and development particularly for people who are managing people to understand understand what what's going on there really Mm. Mm. really really interesting uh tell us about some of your mentors who influenced the way that you think about marketing demand gen brand uh b2b complex buying cycles tell us about some of your mentors um yeah so i guess i was lucky to join the marketing practice at the time when it was um small but there were lots of brilliant people there so so clive the founder that we mentioned there's a, there's a chap called paul who who hired me who's who's absolutely brilliant as well and, and Lindsay, who's the other co-founder is you know there are several brilliant people there and I had the opportunity to learn from them very very closely later on there's a there's a there's a chap who called Rob Anger who who I work with closely at the marketing practice who who you know I think had a big influence and then you know I think I've not I've not had a formal marketing education Hmm. so I've had to educate myself as as we go that's you know Mm -hmm. another interesting subject but I, I did the marketing week mini MBA that Mark Ritson does, okay. uh, and that was a big influence. Um, and then you know some of the people that we've mentioned, the behavioural psychologist Kahneman and Tversky, and mm-hmm. um, the chap called Richard Shotton, who does a lot of really good stuff uh, at, at the moment about behavioural science. Rory Sutherland, those sorts of people. Mm. So just on on that subject, then uh, you mentioned a couple of my favourite authors already. Tell us about some of your favorite books marketing related non-marketing related fiction non-fiction whatever yeah um i've quite i i quite like a bit of fiction as well um i think on, on the on the marketing side there's a book called the anatomy of humbug by a guy called paul feldwick okay he was one of the sort of big agencies that were i think it's jwt that was sort of you know very planning led um and sort of developed that brand planning uh, approach really um, and it's an intellectual history of advertising. So if you like that kind of thing, it's great. Yeah. It, uh, it's really good. Um, and then... Tell us about something that you learned from the book. Oh, um, so he goes through this whole history from the, from the 60s, really, up to the, up to the present day and talks about the different perspectives people have taken on advertising and why it works and how it works. And then he finishes on this, um, he looks at P.T. Barnum, you know, the guy who was the, the subject of the, the Greatest Showman. Um, right. And 
uh, kind of old circus impresario, and he kind of concludes that yeah. actually maybe it's all about the showmanship, uh, and that's quite a nice little thing to fall back on and to remember. Yeah, really interesting. Okay, added to the list, the anatomy of humbug. Give us, give us one more. Yeah, so I, I, there's a book that a fiction book uh, that I think is just amazing that uh, read recently, which is called Lincoln in the Bardo. I go, a guy called George Saunders. Um, Lincoln and... Lincoln in the Bardo. It's about in the Bardo. Abraham Lincoln. And it, well, it's about his, his... He had a son who died when he was kind of 10, I think, something like that. Uh, Willie. And it's about it's about that, really. Um, and it's about his the father's grief for his son and this mm. in, in the time of the Civil War. Mm. It's, uh, it's kind of slightly kind of I guess magical realism is it that there's you you spend a lot of time with Willie in the in the bardo which is like the graveyard and there are lots of sort of people who are um not quite ghosts but they're kind of in between life and death uh it's but it's it's absolutely amazing I could recommend it to anybody really interesting George Saunders uh winner of the Man Booker Prize for 2017 added on my list Tell us what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? Uh, so yeah, I do a lot of running. Still, I used to do a lot of five-a-side football. That that stopped at the moment. But yeah, I find um, a lot of my a lot of my best ideas, maybe my worst ideas. I'm not sure that <laughs> all my ideas come when I'm uh, when I'm out running and, and those endorphins are, are going. Yeah, it, that's for someone else to decide whether they're good ideas or yeah. bad ideas. Uh, but you have ideas. Yeah. Um, uh, Amazon Prime or Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus. There's there's so many these days. What are you, what are you watching or streaming that's good? So I'm going to say turn off the telly and, and read a read a good book, Nathan. But um, uh, no, I was with, I've got two young kids, so you know you have to watch a bit of telly with them. And there's a there's there's one program that's actually acceptable for grown-ups, which is called Sarah and Duck, uh, which is sort of very twee and kind of slightly weird. But um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, into Sarah and Duck. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I won't be watching that by myself. It would be a bit <laughs> weird. But they've gotten remarkably good at making shows that appeal to both children and adults, which I think is a very tough skill to master. Some of, some of them have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, last couple of questions and then I'll, I'll let you go. What advice would you give to a millennial or a young person who comes to you and says that they want to start their career in a global B2B marketing agency or even start a B2B marketing agency? Uh, yeah, well, we've got a really good grad scheme. You know, I came through the grad scheme. Our CEO did. Uh, Chief Innovation Officer did. Lots of people. So there's probably um, 10 or 15 grads who, who are really senior in the company now. So I'd say, you know, apply to our grad scheme. Apply to the grad scheme. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but probably just going back to the, the, the thing at the start where we, uh, that advice I was given in my first interview, which is to, to get the interviewer to talk as much as possible about themselves because they'll feel mm. better about you. Mm. Great sales technique that is, by the way. Um, and my final question, David, what does it you know about growing a global B2B marketing agency today that you wish you knew at the very beginning of your career? Yeah, so, I mean, lots, obviously. Uh, most of it would just come through experience. But uh, I think I didn't have, as I said, a, a sort of formal education in marketing, didn't do a marketing degree, learn through experience. 
uh, and then went back and started studying marketing discipline and reading up on that and taking courses in that and that then really helped cement what I'd learned and I think actually I, I realized at the time if I'd learned some of those technical disciplines like segmentation and targeting and positioning a, a little bit earlier that would have really helped I think uh, at the time so uh, you know in a way I think you do need a bit of experience it's best to have a bit of experience and, and then to, to do applied learning in a way but um but definitely those kind of fundamental skills of marketing that that don't change even as the the world changes around us. Uh, try and skill yourself up in those. Mm, really, really good good advice. Great place to end. Uh, David, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nathan. We have been speaking with David Van Shake. He is currently the CMO of the marketing practice. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over. 102 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in sales, marketing, and B2B. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Annie Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own dealmasters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Christoph Blaschek is our booker slash project manager. Marian Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Stay tuned for our interview next week with Chris Kemp. He is the CEO and founder of Ingenuity, the leading new business agency in the UK. If you are even remotely interested in anything to do with sales and new business for your agency, then this is not to be missed. I think we have been reasonably successful. I think we've still got a lot more to do. The busy achievement really actually in some ways has been the last nine months. What's so exciting now is, is that a lot of brands are looking for different things and it's changing. A lot of the things that we've always talked about, we've been able to do a lot more of. We've got closer to brands than we've ever got. We've tried new things. You've got to keep innovating and you can't just sit still and you've got to try new methods. If you enjoy what you're doing, you'll take a lot of pleasure out of continuing to do it and to try and change it and grow it and move it forward. I think the success really is about being a business that is all about innovation and is about evolving and, and not standing still. And I think that's a really exciting thing and a good thing for agencies. Keep evolving.